Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. We're totally booked. Rock and roll! Well, I think I'll leave you to your reading. Little hands says it's time to rock and roll. Rock and roll We are totally booked. Welcome back to the Booked on Rock podcast. I'm Eric Sanich. Make sure you give us a five-star review and subscribe to the podcast. Go to bookedonrock.com to find out all of the platforms where you can listen and subscribe. Author William Irwin is our guest to talk about his new book, The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. More than 40 years since their formation and 125 million album sales later, Metallica is as relevant as ever. Much has been written about the band, the meaning of Metallica is the first book to focus exclusively on their lyrics. Their mighty guitar riffs and pounding drums are legendary, but Metallica's words match the intensity of their tunes. Lead singer James Hetfield writes rock poetry dealing with death, war, addiction, alienation, corruption, freedom, religion, and other weighty topics. Painting a rainbow of emotions with a deft palette, subtle but not obscure, Hetfield's lyrics deserve careful attention. A master of narrative, Metallica makes listeners care about a vast array of characters, from a vengeful god, to a suicidal teenager, to a man in midlife crisis. The meaning of Metallica is like a riveting conversation with a close friend. A thematic tour de force that traces Hetfield's lyrical development across the decades, this companion examines everything from deep cuts like confusion to mega-hits like Enter Sandman. Sure to spark debate and discussion, the meaning of Metallica provides a close reading of lyrics, dense with details and rich with illusions. William Irwin is a philosophy professor, literary critic, and heavy metal scholar who teaches at King's College in Pennsylvania. The books in his pop culture series, including Metallica and Philosophy, Seinfeld and Philosophy, The Simpsons and Philosophy, and The Matrix and Philosophy, a New York Times bestseller, have sold over one million copies. A playlist of all the songs we discuss in this episode is on our show notes page. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the Book Done Rock podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. Pleasure to speak with you. There are many books on the music of Metallica, but this one focuses on the lyrics of James Hetfield. You write that his lyrics are worthy of the same attention that Bob Dylan's receive. James, he's never received his due, however. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I mean, part of it is generational, right? So, I mean, the comparison to, to Bob Dylan will seem grandiose to a lot of people. How could you compare anyone to Bob Dylan? But part of it is generational. Dylan just got the Nobel Prize, right? Uh, and it didn't happen 20 or 30 years ago. And part of it, uh, I think, is sort of elitist snobbery in a way uh, that the uh, genre of music metal uh, has had its nose turned up by the sort of music establishment, as you see in places like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, etc. And so the idea of, of taking seriously uh, the lyrics of a, of a metal artist probably doesn't get on uh, the radar of a lot of people, but it, it's time to remedy that. When did you first recognize his lyrics as something that really connected with you? When did you become a fan? Right at the beginning. I date back uh, with the band to 1984. Their first album was 83, Kill Em All. The first album that I heard was Ride the Lightning. And I was 14, Beavis and Butthead type kid with uh, my friend Joe. And he was a step ahead of me on that. He got the, uh, the LP, Ride the Lightning. And as we all did back in the day, he made a cassette tape of it for me. And uh, I listened to it. And I was hooked and got out, uh, went out and got my own final copy. 
And although I was a goofy Beavis and Butthead type kid in a way, I was also a strange mix of uh, sort of morose, emo, uh, you know, uh, could have been listening to the Smiths or something, I suppose, if I went another direction. And so the song that first spoke to me on, on that album was Fade to Black, which is uh, a suicide song that for me and for many, many other people has inspired hope rather than inducing suicide as the sort of parents and authorities might have feared at the time. So right from the beginning, listening to the music, it was clear, right? This is heavier, faster than anything I had heard before, but it was also deeper. Uh, and so the lyrics have been important to me right from the start. Pretty honest too, lyrically. He's transparent. He's James wasn't the type to sing about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This was some powerful stuff. Any particular lyric that really stood out to you in that song, Fade to Black? Well, I mean, uh, just off the top of my head, there, there's the, the line, I was me, but now he's gone. And uh, I was feeling that at, at the time, that somehow I had lost the person that I was. I was in the middle of a sort of a crisis, having been raised in a religion that I didn't really believe in anymore having played sports growing up, but no longer being big enough or athletic enough to really play sports anymore and, and just really feeling lost and depressed and uh, despairing. And, and so that really spoke to me. And that song itself was not written by Hetfield in the midst of real clinical depression uh, or despair, but really a temporary case of, uh, of the downs or the blues after some equipment was stolen. But he was able to do what great writers and artists can do is put himself from that bit of emotion into the mindset of somebody who is in the pit of despair. And, and he captured it better than uh, most people could uh, who had actually felt that. Yeah, we'll get into that song a little bit more as we get into the book. You make it clear up front that this isn't a book where you are saying you know for a fact what these songs are about. This is your own interpretation. And you're also open to opinions you give out your email address and your Twitter handle in the book and you say, have at it. You know, let me know what you think. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is a conversation. The best compliments that I've received from people who've, who've read the book is that it reads like a conversation with a friend. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a one-way conversation because I'm doing the writing and the talking. Uh, but the ideal reader response is, is thinking along with it and saying, yeah, I, I agree with that. I disagree with that. No, this is missing. So I read a lot of books, uh, as you do, Eric, and, and I often will write to an author uh, after I finish the book and tell him or her what I liked or didn't like. And sometimes uh, a friendship and sometimes a dialogue springs out of that. And Sometimes, too often, uh, I just get ignored. Uh, so I, I promise anybody who's reading the book that if you contact me through email and the email address is in there or DM me through Twitter, I'll get back to you. We may not become lifelong friends, but you never know. Uh, if you read the book and it feels like a conversation, I'd love to continue it. Yeah, because at the end of the day, we're all Team Metallica here. We're not <laughs> looking for any yeah i like to think so yeah yeah there, there it's a family there are disagreements and spats and uh, that sort of thing but yeah team metallica maybe that's better than a family yeah yeah or maybe one happy dysfunctional family you could go with that too but that's okay yeah. i mean because metallica yeah. has a long history they've taken a lot of chances and we know that there are a lot of fans who disagree with some of their moves and a lot who don't but that's cool man they're a real band their integrity is intact they do what they feel is important to them musically and with James lyrically. You may not like what they do, but you respect it. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned right at the start about honesty, and I, I think that's a, that's a guiding virtue for the band and primarily for Hetfield uh, with lyrics, right? And the, from Master of Puppets, the, uh, the closing track, Damage Incorporated, has the great line that was emblazoned on T-shirts and things, honesty is my only excuse. And, you know, that was the calling card on, on that album about how we're going to do things on our own terms and go against the grain until the end. And the hardcore fans like myself at the time were psyched up with that. And some of us uh, were not so happy with some of the choices and changes that they made along the way, judging them as not honest. Uh, but in, in fact, I think in retrospect, the choices were not calculated, uh, even though they might have seemed like that to some people at some times as moves for greater popularity or, 
whatever. So yeah, and the, out, mid, the but, mid nineties was yeah, that was the yeah. So they've done what they wanted to do, and, and you know, as we'll talk about, I'm sure by the time you get to some of those albums that are uh, anathema to some hardcore fans, the honesty on them and the lyrical integrity uh, is even greater than on the earlier albums. Yeah, and we will also address James his reaction to the criticism too as we get into this. So let's start with religion. A lot of subjects that James attacks on his songs lyrically, and you explore them throughout this book, starting with religion. What religious upbringing did James have? Hardcore fans will probably know that he was raised as a Christian scientist, but this comes as a real surprise to more casual fans or or listeners. And so for those not terribly familiar with Christian scientists, the basic idea, at least uh, in the sort of fundamentalist version of it that he was raised in, is that we don't need medicine and the healing power of God and prayer will take care of things. And that didn't always work out. And in particular, it didn't work out with, uh, with Hetfield's own mother, who died when he was 16 because she hadn't sought medical care. And at the time, his father had abandoned the family. So for all intents and purposes, he's on his own and needs to move in with an older brother at 16 years old. Wow. Yeah, the song Creeping Death, that comes off of my personal favorite Metallica album, Ride the Lightning, 1984. The song is inspired by scenes from the 1956 film The Ten Commandments, and it tells the story of the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, largely from the perspective of an angry god seeking vengeance against the Pharaoh and the Egyptians for enslaving his people, the children of Israel. You say that the genius of this song is that it raises questions about God's justice and about the rationality of believing in such a God without being explicit. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So as you mentioned before, one of the things that Hetfield has has largely done with his lyrics, and really right from the beginning or close to the beginning, uh, is to studiously avoid cliches, right? Sex, drugs, rock and roll. We might add into that Satan. So, And one way of reacting to sort of uh, constricting religious uh, upbringing could be to reject it by going to the other camp, right? And having a sort of uh, Satanist veneer. Most of those bands didn't really take it seriously, especially back uh, in in those days. But what he does uh, is tells uh, a story right out of the Bible, right? Which is the uh, the story of the Exodus and the flight of the, the Hebrews from bondage in Egypt, inspired by having been watching the movie, The Ten Commandments. And I mean, God does not come across as such a great character in that story, despite the fact that he's freeing his people. Uh, there's a lot of gratuitous uh, killing, fire and brimstone, wrath and anger stuff going on that seems kind of needless for an all-loving, all-powerful God. And so I think uh, part of the genius of that is that we, we kind of root along for the, uh, for the God killing all these firstborn Egyptians. I mean, how cruel is that? But we also know this is an unsavory character, and I wouldn't want to you know, hang out with him in real life. He's a bit like Tony Soprano, right? Oh, he's kind of cool on TV, but a dangerous character to actually associate with. And so it's not a head-on assault of religion, but uh, it's implicit when you look closely at what's going on there. What's impressive to me is you got to remember, James is only 20, 21 years old when he's writing about these topics. That's right. Uh, it, it really is uh, quite impressive. And in that case, he's drawing on something that he knows well. He's been schooled in uh, religion, in the Bible. And uh, it's not as if uh, he's trying to do a recreation of Roman history or a retelling of Shakespeare or something like that. He's not a highly educated guy, but he's very intelligent, very perceptive. Uh, and he draws on what he knows. Chapter two gets into the subject of addiction, which James has been pretty open about over the years. And you write that the title track to Master of Puppets from 1986, another classic album. That's a close second for me to ride the lightning. James wrote this song when he was a full-blown alcoholic, but he was still years away from fully accepting it. Yet it's coming through subconsciously, I suppose, with this song. The master here is one's own self-destructive desire for the drug, or in James' case, alcohol. Correct. I mean, a false love that is really an insidious dependence. Is that accurate? 
I think so. And and uh, you ask about my, my sort of personal interest in the band, and this is one of the places where I, I, I go along with it. I, I've had my own struggles with alcohol, been sober 25 years. Nice. Congratulations, uh, you know, these, man. Thank you. But these songs have always spoken to me in that way. And in retrospect, you can see them uh, all the more we tend to creep up on a subject uh, that we're not completely comfortable maybe admitting we have a problem with, or there's also, I know from personal experience, the tendency to look for somebody who is worse off than we are to justify the state that we're in. So uh, it makes perfect sense that most of the addiction songs, particularly earlier on that Hetfield writes are songs that focus more on drug addiction. So if you sort of uh, are on the literal level with Chop Your Breakfast on a Mirror, cocaine addiction uh, is the sort of immediate addiction that comes to mind with the song Master of Puppets. And uh, he sort of took pride in not being uh, a cocaine addict or a drug addict, but thought it was you know just fine uh, for him to be way overindulging in alcohol. And it's very hard to argue with a guy at the pinnacle of his creative powers and great success that maybe you're not uh, living your best life. One thing about the age of 2021 that's not surprising, though, because this is what happened to me. I was kind of the weekend binge drinker, which I I had eventually had to cut that out. But at that age, it starts off as innocent fun. You're doing it with friends. That's how it all starts. And it slowly takes over the mind and you have some interesting insight into that, how it just, it fools you into thinking you're in control once you're on it. But really, all along, it's got that control over you. It's just developing, the, the grip is getting tighter and tighter until you know you've hit rock bottom and it's time to change. That's it. And and the, the imagery of Master of Puppets is just fantastic in depicting that, right? And, and who's actually in control and are you using the drug or using the alcohol or is it using you? In the end, uh, it's not even the substance or the uh, the drink in the bottle, but as we mentioned before, it's it's your own desire which has overrun you and is about to run you into the ground. And it's not a disease that's uh, communicated the way uh, like COVID is, but it's going to have its next victim and uh, it doesn't really need you to stick around as its host. There's a part of the song where James screams something that was unclear to you when you first heard it. Can you talk about what you thought it was and what you eventually found it actually is and its relation to the song's theme of addiction? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, like uh, a lot of kids back in the day, I was obsessed with looking at the packaging that that came uh, with albums, right? I'd always get the big LP to look at the cover art. And, you know, maybe this is some of where my interest in uh, in lyrics came from because they'd be printed on there along with the liner notes you know read all, read all the thanks and the shout outs and all that and master of puppets came with the lyrics but james shouts something uh in the middle of the song which is unclear to the ear and wasn't printed uh in the lyrics uh and uh, i heard it as freeze frame which really made no sense except for the jay giles band song Freeze frame is is uh, was drummed into my head by MTV and uh, and all that kind of thing, and my friend Joe Beavis to my butthead or butthead to my Beavis somehow heard Ace of Spades right the Lemmy uh, Motorhead song that couldn't be because there were too many syllables in his answer so I still think my answer is better but it turns out to be Fix Me right which makes perfect sense from the uh, uh, perspective of drug use, right? Uh, I need a fix, uh, whether it be heroin, cocaine, or whatever the drug uh, indulgence might be, right? Uh, and it, it's such an ironic uh, piece of language uh, as if this were, a, it's a temporary fix to a problem that it's actually going to worsen. Yeah, I, I think of it as a dual meaning. It's like, either fix me, give me my fix, or somebody help me fix me because I'm, I can't get out of this. Yes, exactly right. Maybe it's a moment of clarity or cry out for help in the middle of the song. Yeah. Some later songs you explore in the chapter, including The House Jack Built and Cure from 1996's Load album and Low Man's Lyric from 1997's Reload. What stands out about those songs in terms of the subject of addiction? They could be pretty easily missed for the casual listener who uh, may not be uh, all that tuned into lyrics, generally speaking, but the house that Jack built is just incredible. It's a nesting sort of song. 
and uh, it just depicts the ins and outs of the the cycle uh, of addiction. Open door, so I walk inside, find my place, my, my place to hide. Right, it's all about finding the the comfort in the drink uh, or in the drug, and then losing control. It's all about wanting to lose control in order to find some comfort and relief from the life lived apart from uh, the drink or the drug. And then the the terrible cycle of waking up uh, the next day and and not really knowing for sure what you've done or trying to take responsibility for it and then going back through the cycle again and again. It's the name of a children's story from, from a long, long time back or a nursery rhyme, The House That Jack Built. And Aretha Franklin uh, had done the song, The House That Jack Built, but I like to think of it interpreted through this lens as Jack being Jack Daniels uh, in a way, right? So the the house that Jack built uh, is sort of the life that alcohol built. Also from the Master of Puppets album is Welcome Home Sanitarium. This was inspired by the classic film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Has James talked about how movies have influenced his lyrics over the years? You know, the, Lars is is better known as the movie buff and has even done uh, a little bit of acting and has a great interest in film and has dated actresses and that kind of thing. I'm sure James uh, enjoys movies. He must to the extent that he's used them. But it seems almost accidental. And I haven't heard the story of how One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came into the picture you more commonly hear the stories about uh, they're watching the Ten Commandments and Cliff Burton sees the the fog coming under the door that's going to kill the firstborn. He says, whoa, it's like creeping death. And Hetfield has sort of a poet's ear and picks up on a, a piece of, uh, of spoken word and, uh, and, and tugs it in. And of course, with one, Lars had the idea we should have this song about somebody who's just radically disabled uh, and uh, their management had suggested that they watch uh, Johnny Got His Gun. But I, I think uh, in the case of Welcome Home Sanitarium, the inspiration is really just sort of loosely there because the song doesn't really track the movie uh, or the book. And, and to my taste, it's a more interesting and deeper take on the, the whole idea of what it means to be institutionalized, to be labeled, to be put in a, in a box. So yeah, and, and the line that sticks out uh, in, in my mind from that song in particular, among others, is whisper things into my brain. Again, another piece of Petfield poetry, right? Uh, where it's just a great image, right? I mean, it's one thing for somebody to whisper something into your ear, you know you're they're doing it. You feel the vibrations, you hear the words, but the subtlety with which sometimes we're programmed by what others think of us, say about us, and this is the way uh, in which we've all experienced it from whoever, coaches, parents, priests, rabbis, whoever it may be, uh, particularly in positions of authority. You don't have to be in an institution and labeled crazy uh, in order to have felt the constriction of being labeled. The song Welcome Home Sanitarium, it's part of Chapter 3 titled Insanity and Confusion, and you write that the song is specific in its setting, but it is universal in its appeal, the feeling of being stuck, wanting to escape, and who hasn't felt that way at some point in their life? And as a teenager, I can remember myself, so many of my peers connecting with this song. Teenage years can very much feel like a prison. I think that's why Metallica, when I was in high school, and I'm sure when you were in high school, a lot of the kids were you'd see wearing the Metallica shirts. They really had an attachment to Metallica. Yeah, I mean, we can over-dramatize things, particularly as teenagers, but it's the only experience that we've had thus far in life. And yeah, high school can feel like a prison. Home can feel like a prison, an asylum, an institution. You know, you listen to that song and you identify with the narrator all the way through to the point at which he's uh, ready to kill his way out of the asylum, right? Which is not what goes on in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is why I say that. But also uh, just the leave me be part of it. It's the misunderstanding stood you got somebody who's institutionalized the angrier he gets the more crazy they think this person is where they just if you 
leave them be, that's the cure. But they don't think that's the cure. So it's this vicious that's cycle. Right. Keeps them stuck in there. That's right. And and we've all experienced that sort of maybe well-meaning mistreatment uh, from authority figures, particularly at that age and teenage years where somebody thinks that they're being helpful to us by reinforcing something about us that isn't really true or pushing a solution to to a problem that isn't really the solution that's going to work for us. So it's universal in its appeal. But again, I think the sort of takeaway from the song is we don't think that this guy is going to necessarily escape and and be okay. You can't kill your way out of an asylum and have a happily ever after, right? So instead of thinking uh, that, oh, this song is going to inspire kids to violence or something like that, I think instead it does what great art should do. It allows us to discharge the negative emotions so that we don't have to uh, or are less likely to express them in real life, uh, much as from my uh, experience, Fade to Black did that for me with feelings of despair. One last thought on this song, the word fear. It's mentioned twice. What is the significance of that word? Wow. So fear of living on, natives getting restless now, mutiny in the air, got some death to do. That's another great line, I think, got some death to do. Uh, I mean, it's compact uh, and it's not something you ordinarily say, right? You know, fear, of course, is just another really primary visceral emotion, right? And a lot of times what masquerades as anger is really fear. At least that's been my experience when I'm honest in looking back at things. And again, somebody who's in a position of being labeled and constricted and hemmed in by an institution or authority is likely to react with anger, uh, but really have as a primary emotion underneath that fear. And so maybe in the the cases where the, the word fear is breaking through in the lyrics, we have a situation where there's some uh, understanding that the fear is even more basic than the anger. We're talking with William Irwin, author of the brand new book, The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, which has just been released this week. The song Confusion from 2016's Hardwired to Self-Destruct deals with soldiers returning home from the war with PTSD, emotional scars perceived as weakness. James is sympathetic to the soldier in this song. That's right. And this is another song that, uh, as was mentioned before, is inspired by a movie, in in this case, American Sniper. And again, it doesn't follow the movie necessarily, but war is a a subject that comes up repeatedly in in Metallica's lyrics, and there's great sympathy for the soldier and the warrior in in various songs. But here's one where uh, it's after the war, right? after the battle. Uh, and so it's it's looking at PTSD and all of the difficulties that a, a soldier returning from uh, war, returning from combat faces. And again, uh, it's universal in its appeal because uh, although I may not be a combat veteran, the uh, metaphor of life as war or life as a battle is one that we all employ and make use of, even if it's a bit grandiose and and dramatic. And in a way, we're all scarred by life and all returning from the battle. And really what's necessary for one another is some compassion. And uh, the song, compassion, isn't uh, a word uh, that you would come up with in a word association game about Metallica, maybe. But the song evinces real compassion for this person. The Booked on Rock podcast will return after this. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Booked on Rock podcast is online at BookedOnRock.com. Find a list of all the major platforms where you can listen and subscribe to the podcast. Link up to our social media sites. Find out the latest books on rock releases. Find your nearest bookstore. And if you want to reach out to us, you can contact us through our website, bookedonrock.com. Want to go back to the song Fade to Black now. This is the chapter on the theme of death. People thought James was singing about himself. You mentioned this earlier. It's about what you say. He lost his gear. Yeah, that's the story that that he's told that the gear was stolen and oh my god, what are we going to right? So really ends up in in that sort of pit of despair and and makes use of the emotion as he's made use of a lot of uh, of his anger to to channel through songs, right? But it, almost like an actor playing a role puts himself in the mindset and and really uh, delivers with fade to black. Of course, you, you could imagine the uh, soldier who's depicted as returning in confusion as uh, the sort of person who might commit suicide and might have some of these feelings that are uh, displayed in, in Fade to Black. And of course, there's, a, there's an epidemic of, uh, of suicide among returning vets and, and real mental health crisis out there. So it, it's, it's salutary that, uh, that he draws attention to that plight in that way. You bring up an interesting analogy to this song. I always think of it in terms of when I first heard it, which was when I was a teenager, I always think of the despondent teenager, but you write of an old man recalling that he once was a great athlete, but those days have gone. The old man, still himself, however, he's lost that sense of who he is and how he fits into the world. So it's interesting how this song can relate to people from youth all the way to old age. Yeah, I, I, I think so, right? I mean, uh, suicide is not limited to, to the young. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it's great that it's a subject that we speak about much more openly than we did perhaps back in the 80s when the song came on the scene. Uh, but people of all age are subject to depression and despair and uh, a sense of loss. And uh, yeah, it, it can be the old man feeling like uh, life has passed him by and there's nothing left for him just as easily as it could be the 16-year-old in the midst of uh, an existential crisis or whatever. You make reference to subtle suicide in this book. There are different kinds of addiction, addiction to drugs and alcohol, and addiction to fame. Rebel of Babylon from the 2011 EP Beyond Magnetic and how the character flirts with death differently. Subtle suicide. This was inspired by the tragic life of the late, great Lane Staley of Alice in Chains. Yeah, so th that particular song is, is off of that, uh, that EP that you mentioned, Beyond Magnetic, right? Sort of uh, leftovers from the Deaf Magnetic sessions. Some of those songs I actually like better than some of the songs on Deaf Magnetic. The title of the album itself, though, Death Magnetic, is a great image for this concept of, of subtle suicide, right? Which is a real ambivalence toward living, not exactly an active uh, death wish, but a sort of passive death wish, right? So you're not dying to live, you're almost living to die. The song you mentioned, uh, Rebel of Babylon, that in particular is, is inspired by Lane Staley. In the, uh, the song, the narrator, the rebel, is a drug addict and kind of uh, is romanticizing uh, his own death wish, uh, passive death wish that uh, he's uh, indulging through uh, intravenous drugs and seeing how uh, eventually it's going to lead to his demise and he'll live on after that. And uh, it, it, it's an absolute shame. There's a song on Hardwired to, to Self-Destruct that, that continues in similar vein called Moth into Flame, which seems to have been inspired by uh, Amy Winehouse living a sort of similar self-destruction, uh, which could be labeled as subtle suicide. You refer to it as an overdose on shame and insecurity. That's it. That's the, the lyric. And, you know, you, you, you can see how what's driving it is these negative feelings, right? It's, it's, it's a desire to be uh, larger than life 
fueled by or inspired by a feeling of being less than and not feeling right-sized and not feeling comfortable as part of the world. Needing the constant validation. Yeah. And th- th- that's uh, the addiction to the fame, as, as the line goes to goes in the uh, in the song. And that's certainly something that Hetfield or anyone who's uh, enjoyed the limelight has, you know, found. And it, and it's just human, right? We all need approval. And more and more these days, uh, everybody's a star on Twitter or Facebook and needing likes and uh, and all that kind of thing. It's a rush, but it really is. It's like, it's like a slot machine where, uh, you know, you, you pull the lever and hope to win and you get a rush because you could win uh, and uh, you play the game over and over and you lose in the long run. It's sad when you hear these artists say they play in front of 10,000 people, show ends and they're all alone in a hotel room. And a lot of these guys, maybe they have kids, maybe they have families, but they're on the road. They're all alone. They can't even see him. They can't even be around him. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you a book I read that was remarkable uh, on that score is, uh, is Rob Halford from Judas Priest, his uh, uh, autobiography, dealing with his experience as a gay man in the closet at the height of his fame and, and just the absolute sadness and the absolute aloneness. Isolation, uh, and, yeah. Yeah, amazing. One last quick note, too, on Lane Staley, I, I guess this is true. I remember reading it somewhere or hearing it somewhere that every single song he wrote about during his time with Alice in Chains, every single one was about his drug addiction. Yeah, I mean, if it's not explicitly about it, it's implicitly yeah. uh, about it. I mean, he, he was, it was not like he was unaware uh, of the problem. Crazy. Yeah, what a great singer, too. Outstanding band. Oh, my goodness. Metallica's association with the subject of war began for many when the video for One became a huge hit on MTV. One from 1988's Injustice for All, a landmine has taken his sight, speech, hearing, arms, legs, and ultimately his soul, a life in hell. Here we have another song where lyrically it is inspired by a movie, this time 1971's World War I movie, Johnny Got His Gun, James had previously addressed war on the 1984 song For Whom the Bell Tolls, that inspired by Ernest Hemingway's 1940 novel of the same name, specifically a scene described in Chapter 27 of the book. Right. One is inspired by the, uh, the, the movie Johnny Got His Gun, as I had mentioned before. Lars had the idea that they had, should have a song about somebody. He was calling the, this person would be a basket case, which is not a great description of it, but he had the idea that somebody who's so injured uh, that they're cut off from their senses. And it's recommended to them that they check out Johnny Got His Gun. The reference to uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls Off Ride the Lightning. That's uh, a puzzling one. I'd love to hear from anybody uh, who knows exactly how that came about, because it really is chapter 27 out of Ernest Hemingway's novel For Whom the Bell Tolls. As far as I can tell, the movie doesn't even include that scene uh, that's in the novel. The movie's obviously adapted. So I don't know uh, if James had read For Whom the Bell Tolls uh, at, at some point or, he, or somebody had recommended it. Cliff Burton was, was probably a bigger reader. He's the one who is the big H.P. Lovecraft Cthulhu fan. So it could have been, uh, if I had a guess, and maybe I'm totally wrong, that Cliff Burton had read uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls and uh, had told James, read this, and and it inspired it. But it's sort of a development there, right? Because For Whom the Bell Tolls, maybe the war is is worthwhile. You're fighting for this hill and you're, you're questioning whether or not it's worth dying for. By the time you get to Master of Puppets, the album after Ride the Lightning, that is for whom the bell tolls, we get Disposable Heroes, where it's very clear uh, that you're being uh, treated as a pawn, as cannon fodder. And uh, as you mentioned before, these songs are written during a time of relative peace, right? And uh, there's no definite context for Disposable Heroes, but we can easily imagine it as, as Vietnam and the Vietnam War had certainly uh, come under its fair share of criticism by that point. And it looks like by the time you get to one, it really was the scenario of this person who's so badly mangled in war that they're deprived of their senses and deprived of their will to live and can't communicate it. 
that is the interesting part. And, and the war part is almost secondary, though the movie uh, that uh, inspires the song Johnny Got His Gun is set in World War One, which, of course, itself was an unpopular war for the United States to enter into. Lots of protests, et cetera, and, and it's very much an anti-war movie that, of course, as you mentioned, from 1971, is meant as an implicit critique of Vietnam. The book is The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics, which was just released this week. The author, William Irwin. Let's get into some of the songs from the Black Album, 1991. Don't Tread on Me. Did James do an about-face with this song? Because he seems to be glorifying war here. But your answer is no, and it's not that simple. What is this song about, and what is its inspiration? So uh, as diehard fans will know from having seen the video for Nothing Else Matters, which was filmed in the, uh, the, the studio in recording the Black Album, when they were recording the Black Album, they had the Culpepper flag as part of the uh, background. And the Culpepper flag is a version of the Don't Tread on Me flag. And this is way before Tea Party or a lot of the associations that are more current. And so as the flag itself and the motto and the sort of uh, American spirit behind that, the Culpepper flag goes back to one of the Virginia militias, I believe, from Culpepper, Virginia. And just the uh, idea uh, that the British were you know, uh, taxation without representation and, and all of that that led to the revolution. One of the ways, it, it, it seems like an odd song in a couple of ways. There are, for a lot of people, they don't particularly like the, the sound of it. It sounds a little bit different and a little discordant somehow on the Black Album. I've, I've never felt that. But it seems a little bit out of sync with the uh, largely anti-war message we see in uh, earlier songs as we've been discussing. But it's, of course, not advocating proactive war. It's suggesting uh, defense, really, uh, in response to, to genuine wrongs. One of the problems that the song uh, has had is that uh, it was written before the Gulf War, but the Gulf War began not too long after the Black Album was really in, in peak popularity. And so it, it's had that association as some sort of call to war against Saddam Hussein and, uh, you know, the whole business with the first Gulf War. It also, uh, in, in some ways, is uh, different from the, uh, the album that preceded it, and Justice for All. The two of them go together, uh, the Justice album, which, of course, is white and has the uh, statue of the uh, blind justice holding the scales, contrasted with the stark black album with the snake coiling on the front, like from the Culpepper, Don't Tread on Me flag. They can seem opposite, but they're really uh, two sides of a similar coin in that liberty uh, is what's missing from the phrase and justice for all, right? It's supposed to be and liberty and justice for all, and it's liberty that's called for in the lyrics of uh, Don't Tread on Me. Well, I'm going to get into wherever I may roam now, and I may get some hate emails for this one, Bill, but this is <laughs> my feeling. It's, it's a hippie-like mentality. The narrator is someone who finds happiness in adventures on the road even if it has to be by foot, he's not tied down to the corporate world, not a slave or a pawn to a game they don't control. And I think of Pete Townsend's lyric in Going Mobile from The Who. I'm an air-conditioned gypsy. That's my solution. Watch the police and the tax man miss me. That's right. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, Hippie is, is fine with that. I mean, dropping out, not doing what anybody else demands that you should do, right? And for me, it, I mean, it's, it's a road song in a way, too, Famously, Metallica covered Bob Seger's Turn the Page, which is a great song in its way. But I've always found songs like Turn the Page and like Bon Jovi's uh, Wanted Dead or Alive. It's kind of tiresome. I have, I have no sympathy for a rock star who's having a tough time uh, on the road. I mean, I'd love to be a rock star on the road if I'm some kid in Peoria or Yonkers, as was my case. You know, but this is about in some ways, what it's like to be a band on the road. And uh, it's without kind of uh, asking for sympathy or glorifying it. And uh, it, it's not that sort of cliche song where, where Metallica comes close to embracing a cliche trope. They always do something different. Uh, and so this is a, an embrace of freedom, right? And you, you can 
put it uh, without being too grandiose in the whole American tradition of that sort of thing from Huckleberry Finn out on, on the raft to Jack Kerouac out on the road, you know, to Allen Ginsberg. Uh, I mean, without saying that it's the equal of those, uh, it's, it's a real American mentality. The narrator of Wolf and Men from the same album, you point out it's a kindred spirit to that of Wherever I May Roam. Also, from that album is The Unforgiven, which answers the question, why would somebody want to hit the road and roam or even self-redefine as a wolf? How does this song answer that question? Yeah. So, I mean, Unforgiven is a song where the, the reflections become very personal. And uh, although Hetfield is always using a narrator that isn't to be identified strictly with him, it really starts to come through in Unforgiven, where he's reflecting on the way in which he was mistreated in family and various institutions and really uh, fed up with resentment and wanting to break free of all of that. And so in some way, you can see uh, wherever I may roam as, as sort of the answer to that. I'd like to just say, screw you all and screw society and everything else. And it's a song that, that could tread the line over into a cliche and doesn't. And of, of Wolf and Man is another one, right? Where I love Ozzy, but it could easily just be Bark at the Moon, where it's a werewolf kind of song. But it's not. It's about embracing uh, your true and authentic and, and wild self, right? It's very much like Freud realizing in uh, civilization and its discontents that uh, we're all sort of repressed living in society, having to follow the rules that we have to do in order to get along uh, as well as we do, even if that's not very well. And uh, of course, Hetfield, uh, as fans know, is a big hunter and nature enthusiast. So the idea of being out in the wild and uh, being your sort of uh, authentic self as discovered apart from civilization and, you know, the wolf side, the animal side of you certainly speaks to that desire to break free from the constrictions of society. Well, as we know, if you're a Metallica fan, you know, self-discovery and evolution are real important to James. He's written some songs. Metallica is certainly not a love ballad band, but he's written a few like Nothing Else Matters and The Unforgiven 2 from 97's Reload. And these are addressed in the chapter on emotional isolation. Both of these songs James wrote about his girlfriend, Kristen Martinez. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. To escape that isolation, you have to give up yourself completely to someone. James found that once he did that, it's a new day. He's got a whole different view on life. Yeah, so the, the first of those two songs was written about uh, his girlfriend at the time or inspired by her, Kristen Martinez. That's not who he ended up marrying and being married to still. And of course, it wasn't even supposed to be a Metallica song. It really doesn't sound uh, like your typical Metallica song. It's It's a very soft ballad uh, in many ways, but it's about finding connection with somebody, right? Being vulnerable, being open, and this sort of mentality of the world is constricting and making life difficult for me. One way to find remedy for that is to have the close connection with another person beyond friendship and booze buddies to romantic love. And so we, we get that sort of joining and connection and nothing else matters in, in really an excellent way. The lyrics remain true to Metallica, even if the ballad softness of the song seems out of step. But then in uh, The Unforgiven 2, uh, which I, I couldn't say is, is necessarily written about the same woman, but can, can really be linked with the song, Nothing Else Matters. We have, again, a person who is opening himself to being vulnerable in a, in a romantic relationship. To love is to risk. We all know that. You take a big chance when you open up yourself to another person in the way that uh, a romantic relationship involves. And uh, if you follow, and this is a very subtle song. I had listened to it hundreds of times, I think, before 
really going back to it to work on this book when I uh, really paid more attention and, and noticed, all right, there's a betrayal in here. And by the end, the narrator kills or at least imagines killing the woman. And so as she was at first some sort of remedy to the people that would be unforgiven out in the world who've wronged the narrator, by the end, she's unforgiven too. And uh, so unforgiven uh, that the narrator can't deal with the betrayal, can't deal with life in that situation and either kills her or imagines killing her. And again, this is the furthest thing from advocating violence. It's one of the great things I think about Metallica is that again, one of the tropes or cliches they've avoided is the sort of misogyny that too many metal acts have been associated with. This is not a hating on women kind of thing at all, because when you pay attention to the way that the story ends, the narrator is completely uh, to blame for what he's done. I want to ask you about the Unforgiven 1, 2, and 3. I, I want to give you my theory here. So we have the first song where the narrator is raised in a restricted environment, but has the ability to break free. In the second song, he's ready to break free of himself. The narrator has just met someone he's fallen in love with. He's ready to give up himself to remove the armor. But then we have the Unforgiven 3, which is from 2008's Death Magnetic. The narrator is lost again. He's living the quiet family life. He's doing the day-to-day -day things that a husband and father does. He has a purpose, but he's either forgotten that or he's never fully realized that. And he thinks that freedom from responsibilities and conformity that he dreamt of equates to happiness, but it actually leaves him feeling empty and cold, like a midlife crisis. Ultimately, he's, his inability to forgive himself has led to his mistakes and blindness to real happiness. Am I close? That's the way I take it as well. Art. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and this is one of the ways in which Metallica continues to be therapy for me in addition to poetry for me, right? I'm, I'm now 52. And uh, so this is a song that really speaks to a guy who's 52. I can identify for sure. And I was talking to an old friend yesterday who's had a very successful career as an attorney, and he's my age, uh, and he's going to retire because in his words, for 27 years, I've gotten up and done a job that I hated. And ironically, what uh, he would love to do, I said to him, well, wh what are you going to do if, if you retire? He said, well, I'm getting pretty good at guitar. <laughs> and I don't think he has delusions that he's going to become a rock star, but between playing golf and playing guitar and uh, whatever else, that's a lot less potentially harmful to the people in his life, right? Because in, in the song Unforgiven 3, the, the narrator really is abandoning family, friends, and, and everybody else who uh, likely will have a difficult time forgiving him. But quitting your job and playing some golf and guitar might not be so bad by comparison. Got a chapter on control that deals with one giving up the war within ourselves. Give up the struggle, which leads us to the song The Struggle Within from the Black Album. But he's also keeping people at arm's length due to his insistence on control. This leads to isolation. And this is also addressed in All Within My Hands, which is from 2003's St. Anger. Can you talk about how this quest for constant control affected James both personally and professionally? Because on All Within My Hands, he's talking about a former bandmate here. Yeah. So all within my, but St. Anger in general hasn't gotten a lot of love for perhaps a lot of reasons, but all within my hands is a song that's gotten rehabbed, uh, if you will. They've done uh, acoustic versions of it, performed it with symphony, and I think it's getting more love these days. And th that's a song, of course, that dates from uh, the St. Anger album. And for those who've seen uh, the documentary, Some Kind of Monster, about the filming, uh, about the uh, recording of that album and all the band drama around it. Bassist Jason Newstead has left the band. And one of the reasons that he left the band, I think a primary reason, is just that Hetfield was so controlling and Newstead wasn't getting a lot of writing credits or opportunities. And, and that might have been okay with him because James was the was the better writer, but he then wanted to do a solo album or a side project, and Hetfield is restricting that. 
And th this is something that Hetfield has uh, realized about himself and that has roots in his own upbringing, right? So you mentioned the song, The Struggle Within, going back to the Black Album, where it really he knows the focus and the problem is internal. Really, the problem is not outside, but inside. And then onto the Load Albums, we have King Nothing, which is really about the isolation that comes from being the controlling and manipulative presence, right? And this, this had problems and manifestations in his personal and family life and certainly in his band life. And then by the time you get to All Within My Hands, right, it sound, the, the imagery, again, is, is really nice. It sounds like something gentle and potentially loving. And this is something that I can really nurture, like a little nice baby chick in your hands or something. And uh, it's actually become the name of a charity that Metallica is behind, the All Within My Hands Foundation. But it's about crushing whatever comes into your hands and killing it uh, and strangling it because you need to control it. Uh, the imagery in King Nothing was like the imagery of the Midas story where everything he touches to gold, but that's incredibly isolating because you can't touch anybody or anything and get close to it. And even worse is what happens with all within my hands. You have to choke all within my hands as, as the line goes. And that, that gets picked up again on the most recent album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, with the song Atlas Rise, which is chiding uh, the figure of Atlas, who thinks that he needs to hold up the world, and that really the uh, best thing for you and for others is to, to let go and to sort of uh, wear the world as a loose garment, as the saying goes. Has Jason Newstead responded to those songs? In the press, has he been quoted? Not a lot. He's always been very gracious about it and hasn't said that, for example, that song is about me or I know what that song is about or a moment of great apology, etc. He's a very gracious guy. I can only hope that uh, in their private and personal interactions that Hetfield has made amends to him for yeah. the way that he was mistreated. The backlash to the St. Anger album was addressed by James with the song The Judas Kiss from 2008's Death Magnetic. And this is about something we were mentioning early in the interview about these guys, you know, they're human. They were hurt by some of the backlash to the album. And James, you know, he, he was kind of bummed out by it. Another one from the album is Broken, Beaten, Scarred. Although he and the band never admitted to feeling hurt by fans who felt betrayed by the band, it does come through in this song. He realizes that fans aren't going to tell you everything you do is a work of art. In fact, they may come at you pretty hard. And this was a difficult time for him. Any artist who's been around long enough, they're going to have to eventually face this. And this is how he faces it through the music. Yeah. And what more appropriate way to handle it, right? Hetfield, as, as I've said, has been a, a vulnerable uh, and exposing his vulnerability from the start. And of course, in, in the press, and particularly Lars, who does a lot more press than Hetfield does, was always kind of cool about it. Fans can, you know, it, it's, it's nice to be hated again and, you know, things like that. But it was one thing with uh, the Black Album, which was seen as too commercial or a sellout, or the Load Albums, which for some people were seen as too alternative and not heavy enough, and the haircuts and all of that. But the, the problem with saying Anger for most fans was just that it wasn't, wasn't good. It sounded bad. And so it looked like they were done, like they were has-beens. And I think that really cut at the core of, of Hetfield, if we can take that song to be, as I think it is, him working through his own feelings of fan rejection. And how grandiose can you be uh, than to compare yourself to Jesus being portrayed by the ultimate betrayer, Judas, right? And, you know, listen, I've said Hetfield is God myself, but I haven't literally meant it. And so, yeah, the real depths of feeling like, I've been betrayed by fans and that maybe I can't rise to the occasion and deliver the goods the way that I once have. I think the answer to the to the Judas Kisses, as you mentioned also on that album, Death Magnetic, in the song Broken, Beaten, Scarred, where we have the uh, refrain to rise again, right? You're down, you fall, you rise again. And then 
a kind of kitschy uh, paraphrase of Nietzsche with what don't kill you make you more strong, which can sound like overly macho, hyper-masculine chest thumping, but it's it's followed up by the lyric to show your scars. So it's not saying doesn't hurt me, just a flesh wound. It's that I'm scarred by this uh, and here I'll show you but en route to healing, overcoming, transcending, rising again, which for me, from fade to black onward, has been the predominant message of Hetfield's lyrics, that I'm hurt, I'm injured, I'm clawing my way forward, and I'm going to rise again. I'm curious to hear what James has to say post-COVID, post-Trump. Like you write in the conclusion to the book, James Hetfield's renewed sobriety and the chaotic state of our world will certainly influence the lyrical direction of new songs. So what would you like to hear from Metallica next, specifically when it comes to the lyrics from James? Well, certainly reflecting on where he is personally, I I think he's at his best when, when he's doing that rather than and even when, when, like on the Justice album, uh, when there were songs that are considered more political in nature and they were being called CNN of metal at that time, they're always without clear context, right? So there are songs on that album about censorship and about the right to freedom of expression and potential problems with the justice system, but they're never so linked into current events that you have to share the particular point of view. So I, I, I don't particularly need to hear what Hetfield thinks about COVID or Trump or anything uh, like that, although it might be interesting in a personal conversation. He's living uh, a life's journey the way that, there were, that we're all living a life's journey. He's seven years older than me, uh, and so he's always been a few steps ahead in terms of what that's like. He's not a young man by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, you could call him old at this point. He's got the AARP card, right? So uh, what does life look like now where you're closer to the end than you are to the beginning? How does it feel to have uh, stumbled from your sobriety and and renewed it? These are the kind of things, whether directly or indirectly, that I'd love to hear about. But he and the band uh, always have a a tendency to surprise us. So who knows what's coming? I like to compare it to a reunion with an old friend. May not have seen them in years, but I I still recognize them. And sometimes we connect better than others. Sometimes I like the 1986 version of my old friend better than the 2022 version. But it's still good to see them again. It's still good to connect and see where each other are at. Do we know where Metallica is at right now? Are there plans for another album? What's the latest on the band? Supposedly, uh, there have been a lot of songs being written uh, during the, uh, the the COVID period, but there's no release date for an album. They're out playing concerts this summer, and albums for them take a lot longer than we might like these days. Uh, it's certainly a real event when, when we get them, but it's not as if, they've decided to retire from recording. It's just that they do it a lot less frequently than fans might like. James Hetfield will be 59 on August 3rd, born Downey, California, August 3rd, 1963. So Bill, you mentioned in the book, so we want to get this out there, your email address, your social media pages, you want to get those out there so people can send you emails and reach you on social media to give their thoughts on the book, on their favorite songs. What do you yeah, want to- that, that would be great. Like I said before, the, the book is, is supposed to be a conversation and I've had my say. So if you've read the book, my email address is William Irwin, my name spelled with an I, I-R-W-I-N, at kings, K-I-N-G-S dot E-D-U. Send me an email. I'm a really good uh, emailer. I won't neglect it. I'll get back to you. Less good at Twitter, but if that's your uh, means of communication, I'm on Twitter at William Irwin 38 I don't like getting involved in big Twitter battles with people like that, but I am open to DMs. DM me. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, what I left out. I don't, I'd probably talk about somewhere between one half and two thirds of all of Metallica's songs in the book. But as Eric has nicely highlighted... I go about it thematically, not album by album, song by song. So no doubt I left out a song or two that people think is important lyrically and otherwise. I'd love to hear about that. 
maybe I'll get a chance to write about that some more in the future. I was going to say, yeah, maybe another book. Plenty of songs to, yeah, to pull from. The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. So it's out now through ECW Press. It's available wherever books are sold. Any websites that you want to let people know about or just go to Amazon? Listen, wherever anybody wants to get a book, I'm glad that they get it. You figure it out for yourself, folks. And support your local bookstore, too. If you find a copy there, get one there. We always have a link on our website to find your nearest bookstore. And I will put up your email address and your Twitter account on the show notes page. Well, this was great. Thanks, Bill. Eric, thank you so much. I've been been doing a few of these podcasts. This is by far the best interview I've had. I really appreciate your professionalism and really reading the book and great questions. Really great. I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much, and thanks for being on. And thank you, as always, for listening. Look forward to having you back again for the next brand-new episode of Booked on Rock. That's it. It's in the books. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.